Our reading will be from page 861, 2 Peter chapter 3, from 1 to 10. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophet and command given by our Lord and Savior through, our, through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffering and following their own evil desires. They will say, where, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by, the, by God's word, the heaven existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the word of that time was delodged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The element will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Amen. Let us bow in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. Um, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself and your plans and your purposes for our world and for our lives through the pages of scripture. And we pray now, Father God, here and also in the hall, that uh, as we sit under the sound of your word, that you would be informing and transforming us, that we would have a greater understanding of Jesus, a greater uh, maturity and appreciation of how we ought to be interacting with others in our world, and a greater preparedness uh, to be ready to meet Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen. Warnings by a US fundamentalist preacher that Saturday is Judgment Day have sent some people into hiding or scrambling to repent while others are planning parties to wave off good Christians as they are beamed up to heaven. Now, so began the Sydney Morning Herald article on May the 21st, 2011, about the predictions of the American man Harold Camping. Remember Harold? Uh, he said that the world was going to end, Jesus was going to return on a particular day, and then it didn't happen. They said he, was, he said he was going to come in a few months later. Now, the, the story, like most other media reports at the time, having introduced the issue, then proceeded just to talk about, just to mock uh, the prediction and to quote others who were mocking the prediction as well. 
Now, of course, we Christians have got good reason to be sceptical. You know, someone says, I know the date that Jesus is going to return. Well, we can be sceptical about that because we know what the Bible says. And the Bible says, well, actually, um, God alone knows the date that Jesus is going to return. And so we might be sceptical, but that's not the reason why other people mock. You don't hear the media saying, well, here's this guy in America and this is, he's, going to, he's saying that the day that, that, that the world's going to end today, Jesus is going to come back, but he's wrong because he hasn't understood the scriptures properly. You're not going to hear the secular media saying that. Instead, they mock the very idea itself. They mock the idea that, that one day, that there will be a day when suddenly Jesus will return and he is going to judge the whole world. Uh, because to many people, they say, well, that's, that's just a myth. That's a hoax. It's, that's laughable. That's, it, it, they treat it like it's a joke. Mm. I wonder about this. How comfortable do you feel about talking to your friends at work or uh, people that you mix with how comfortable do you feel about telling people what you actually believe? That one day, that Jesus is actually in heaven now and that he's going to come back again and he's going to change the whole world and he's going to judge people. How comfortable? Do you feel a bit squirmish? It's a bit easier to say, well, think, you know, maybe the world's going to win because some giant meteorite is going to kind of plough into the planet and knock it off its orbit and you know, destroy everything. We can feel a bit uncomfortable about talking about what we actually believe because well, part, of the, part of the issue is that we don't like to be mocked. You know, we know that uh, people will scoff at us, they'll sneer at us, they'll say, you've got to be kidding, how could you possibly believe in that? But there's nothing new in this. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote his second letter, probably... Um, the scholars, you know, there's a bit of debate about this, but uh, my, uh, having read the debate, I think that uh, it seems to me that uh, Peter wrote his letter probably about 35 years after Jesus, after Jesus had been resurrected. And uh, what we see is that um, even then uh, there were people who were, uh, there were scoffers, there were mockers uh, who were mocking the idea of the second coming who were around, but not only were they around, but they were also edging their way into the church. Now, last week, I think Peter took you through 2 Peter chapter 2, and you would have seen uh, the apostle warning the Christians about, the, um, about such people, uh, the false teachers. Uh, this week we're going to look at just the first half of chapter 3 and uh, if you care to have that open up in front of you on page, uh, what is it, page uh, 863 I think, 861. Um, what we see in the first couple of verses is something of, of Peter's heart because having uh, refuted the false teachers, and he lets you know pretty clearly what he thinks about the false teachers, doesn't he? In chapter 3, verse 1, he now is talking directly uh, to his, the people whom he's writing to. And how does he call them? He, he refers to them as dear friends or beloved. These are the people whom 
Peter loves. And what he says is, what I want you to do is I want to stimulate your minds into wholesome thinking rather than the rubbish which the false teachers had been feeding them. So have a look at verse 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Now, whose apostles? What does he say? He says, your apostles. I think that's quite deliberate because he, um, he's, what he's saying is, I don't want you to follow the blow-ins. You know, the people who move into your church, they bring all of this new stuff and then they shift out. He wants to remind them of what Jesus had said through their apostles, through the men who laboured amongst them and brought the gospel to them uh, in the first place. This is back to basics. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, he expected that he was soon going to die. And so his goal is to equip the Christians so that after he's gone, that they would be able to stand firm. And so in verses 3 through to 5, he wants them to know how to respond uh, when people say that the second coming is a big joke. So verse 3, verse 3, he says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their evil desires... They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on uh, just as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, let's pull that apart a little bit. First of all, he talks about the last days, doesn't he? Now, uh, the last days is not some time in the future which is just, you know, just immediately before the second coming of Christ, uh, as some people say it is. In the New Testament, the last days refers to that period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, it's the period of time between the resurrection and the promise of the, of the coming again and the actual coming again. So the last days is the period in which we now live. And in these last days, we ought to expect people to mock the second coming. Now, they do so on two grounds. Firstly, they reject the promise that Jesus would return in the future. Uh, You see... Uh, This is a promise that Jesus had made throughout his ministry. uh, At various times, Jesus had said that he would be the son of of man, would come again. Uh, Even uh, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, uh, two angels appeared before the disciples and they said, and I quote, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven he will come back to you in the same way that he's gone to heaven. And so this is the promise of Scripture, a clear promise that Jesus would return. But the scoffers say that Jesus 
and the angels cannot be trusted. Uh, but, you know, where is this promise? You know, uh, you know, they don't trust the promise. But secondly, they go on to say, because, well, you see, nothing's happened as yet, has it? I mean, it's been a long time. Um, ever since our fathers died, the world has just kind of ticked on and, you know, as it always has, the laws of nature just rolls on and there's been nothing that's actually happened ever since our fathers died. Now, just as an aside, when Peter says, just as our fathers died, he uses a word for death, which is the word which is commonly used by the authors of the New Testament uh, when referring to um, death. And it actually means uh, to, go, to go to sleep. Uh, that's what it means, to be asleep. And, and it's a word which is common in the New Testament to describe death because of the very point that Peter is making here. And that is that the, uh, the biblical view is that death is not the end. That uh, when the Lord Jesus returns, that uh, everyone will be resurrected. Uh, the dead in Christ first, but the, everyone will be resurrected. Uh, either to judgment or to eternal life. And so death is seen as being merely asleep. In fact, it's so this Christian view has so found its way into our culture that the, the word cemetery uh, comes from this Greek word which means to sleep. So, uh, technically, the word cemetery actually means sleeping place. Did you know that? It's a place for sleeping. And that is because of the uh, biblical teaching on the resurrection uh, and how that shapes our view of what it means to actually die. But the scoffers say it's not going to happen. Now, why? What, what motivates their uh, rejection of the idea of the second coming of Jesus and judgment? Uh, why is it that they do not trust the promise? Well, there's a clue in verse 3 where Peter says it is because they follow their own evil desires. Now, of course, when we're speaking to people about the, the second coming of Jesus, uh, it's uh, appropriate for people to ask questions and not to simply accept that without thinking it through uh, more deeply. And uh, for myself, I think that the uh, thing I want to talk to people about is the resurrection of Jesus and the evidences that there are for the fact that he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Uh, those evidences, of course, uh, being the eyewitness accounts, which we're able to scrutinise. The eyewitness accounts of people who said that he was dead, he's raised again, we actually talked with him, we walked with him, we saw him, and we saw him ascended to heaven. Uh, and so the New Testament documents, we would argue, are historical documents with eyewitness accounts. Uh, more than that, I would talk to people about the changed lives 
of those who claim to have seen the resurrection. And the fact that because people are not generally resurrected doesn't mean it won't happen. The fact is that uh, that's the very reason why Jesus is so unique. So I do want to talk to people about the resurrection as being a basis for considering the, uh, the promise and the reality of his second coming. But uh, here Peter wants to get down to motivations. And in verse 3 he says the reason why these people do not trust the promises is because they want to follow their own evil desires. And that is sin. It's the issue of sin. You see, it makes sense really. If I want to indulge my sinful desires, my greed, my, um, my covetousness, my pride my lusts, my selfishness, and, and so on and so forth, if I want to live my life my way, then there are two things that I do not want to do. Firstly, I, do, I will not want to trust the promises that God has made through Jesus. And secondly, I will not want to make myself accountable to God. Because, you see, if I can block out of my mind any thought that Jesus will return and that when he returns that there will be a day of judgment, so long as I can block those thoughts out of my mind, then I can comfortably just live my life indulging in my own sinfulness. Until someone challenges me to actually think more seriously about the biblical promise and indeed about the resurrection. And when someone actually wants to raise the issue with me and say, hey, you know, Jesus is returning, hey, you know that there is a day of judgment, then that's when things start to get a bit uncomfortable. That's when things could actually get a bit nasty. And that's when I might actually want to deal with that by simply mocking the whole idea and not taking it seriously. And so what they're saying is, well, you can't trust God's promises and it hasn't happened yet, so it won't happen. Well, in verses 5 through to 7, Peter takes those two objections and he deals with them in reverse order. First of all, the objection that says it hasn't happened yet. Well, Peter says, actually, it kind of has happened yet. Uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Uh, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, in the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, uh, what the uh, author of Genesis says is that uh, in the beginning that, the, that water covered the whole earth. And that what God did was that God gathered the waters together so that what emerged out of the water was land. Uh, and, uh, and so in that sense, as Peter says that the world, or the land, because the word he uses here actually means world or land, that the, the land was formed 
from out of the waters. And so he goes on to say, and this same water uh, is what actually creates the land because it gives life to the land. The water is necessary for vegetation and for, and, and for our, our landscape. And so, uh, therefore, uh, what he says there in verse 5, where he says that the earth was, or the land was formed out of water and by water. But what else did God do with the water? The elements. Well, in the time of Noah, he used that same water, which was part of the created and the creative order, he used the same water that brought life to bring judgment, to bring judgment upon those who rejected God and he destroyed their world. Now, it seems that the scoffers have forgotten what God did in this very important uh, um, major event in Genesis, the flood of Noah. So someone might well say, well, okay, uh, God has done major judgment in the past, but why should I believe the promise that he will bring judgment in the future? Verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Uh, I want to look more carefully next week at you know, the idea of the earth being reserved for fire and the nature of that judgment. But there's two points I want to make from the passage today, and that is that firstly, God's word is powerful. And the reason why God's word is powerful is because God is powerful. That's like, that's true in life as well, isn't it? You know, the, um, the mining billionaire magnate, uh, you know, only has to say a word and things happen. You know, a new political party comes into existence. Um, you know, if you're rich, if you've got power, you've just got to speak and things happen, right? Well, how much more so for God? Uh, the God who, uh, who, because of his power, only has to speak a word and the whole universe comes into existence. So God's word is powerful because God is powerful. And secondly, throughout the Old Testament, we see that when God speaks a promise, that that promise be it a promise of blessing or a promise of judgment, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, time and time and time again, what we see is that God's promise is always met with fulfilment. God fulfills what he says because he's faithful to his promise and his word is powerful. God promised Noah that there would be a great flood that would destroy civilization. What did Noah do? He trusted that God's word was faithful, God was faithful to his word, and his word is powerful. So Noah went ahead and built a boat, an ark. People scoffed at him. People said, you can't believe what God says. There's not going to be any flood. There's not going to be any judgment. Just go on living your life the way... What are you doing, Noah, building this boat in the middle of 
You know, there's no sea around here. They scoffed until the rain came down and kept coming and their whole world was washed away. And so uh, this is a warning to us that God is faithful to his word and it is that same word of judgment from the same God that tells us that Jesus will return and there will be a day of reckoning. Now, the scoffers, however, do raise a question which is worth thinking about. And that's the issue of why it's taking such a long time for Jesus to return. Uh, when Peter wrote this letter, as I say, it had been at least, been at least 35 years since Jesus had been raised from the dead. And some of the early Christians, uh, and we can understand why, they uh, were of the view that Jesus would return in their lifetimes. By the way, that's not a bad way of thinking, is it? In fact, uh, you and I should be living with the expectation that Jesus could return uh, in our lifetimes. Indeed, Jesus could return this very day. Because as we live with that expectation, then it means that we're not going to be scurrying to repent because some guy in the US has said that Jesus is going to return on a particular day. Uh, indeed, we will always be uh, living in that expectation, living the repentant life uh, that we ought to be living. So it's not a bad way of thinking. Um, can I just ask the question, would you be ready to meet Jesus? Uh, would you be certain that if he was to return today, that he would find that you are a person who put your trust in his death on the cross, that you would be forgiven and that you would be raised up to eternal life? That's just a question for you to think about. Well, people might have been thinking, 35 years and he still hasn't come back. Well, it's been 2,000 years now, hasn't it? Um, have a look at verse 8. Peter says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter makes two points. Firstly, God is not slow. Now, in Australia, uh, we have a very, very small view of history. I mean, we think that 200 years is a long time, don't we? Um, because for us it is. You know, if you find an archaeological relic that's 150 years old, you want to celebrate that. I think we might, um, <clears throat> don't tell anyone this, but I think we might have found an archaeological relic when we dug the posts for the um, shade sale outside. Uh, we were supposed to have the person from the historic, historical association there, but they waved that. And when the guy drilled down, he drilled into something which we think was convict bricks. Um, so don't tell anyone that, all right? Because, you know, that wow, you know, that's so... Uh, 150 years old, fantastic, that's incredible archaeological discovery. You go to Europe, or you go to many museums around the world, 
150 years? Talk about one, maybe one, one and a half thousand years might be vaguely interesting. Two thousand, three, four thousand year old stuff, stuff that's thousands of years old is just, is just common. See, time, it's, it's relative, isn't it, to your perspective. How much more so for the one who is the ancient of days? the one who has existed from all of eternity to all of eternity. For God, time is expansive. A, a, a thousand years for us, that's, that's nothing for God. Uh, from the perspective of eternity, that's just a day for God. So for God, time is expansive. But for God also, time is intensive uh, because the intensity of one day for God would be like a thousand years for us. Do you see that in the passage? That, uh, you know, it, it says there that to God a thousand years is like a day and a thousand and a, and, a, and, a, and a day is like a thousand years. For God, time is both expansive and intensive. You know, for God, he's not so much interested in a timetable, he's more interested in people. And so far, it's been nearly 2,000 years since the first coming of Jesus. That's not long. And 35 years, well, that's just a microsecond. So God is not slow. Secondly, the 2,000-year wait, it's not because God is slow, it's actually because God is merciful. Sometimes I reflect on the... put an end to this rebellion against you, put an end to this wickedness, put an end to this sin and bring into effect your heavenly kingdom. <clears throat> so come, Lord Jesus. But then I want to say, but, but not yet. <laughs> See, <clears throat> you know, there, there's still people who I love, uh, got a brother, got a sister, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ yet and I really want them to come to faith in Jesus and need a bit more time to... So don't come quite... You see, Peter says that really it's because of God's mercy <clears throat> that, he had, that Jesus hasn't returned uh, now. And we ought to thank him for that. Now, you and I live in the last days. We live in that period of time that's sandwiched between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And th this period of time, the last days, is characterised by two things. First of all, it is, is characterised by opposition. And secondly, it's characterised by grace. Opposition, because people love to follow their own sinful desires. Opposition, because people want to live in independence from God. And they do not want to be accountable to God. And so when we tell people that one day Jesus will come in judgment, well, that's actually very threatening. Uh, we ought to expect to be mocked and ridiculed because what that does is it challenges the very core value of people's lives. But to tell people about Jesus and his coming in judgment is also the most loving thing we could do for people. Because we live in the time of grace. 
We live in that time when it is not yet too late to tell people not just about the second coming of Jesus and what will happen, but also about his first coming and what he did when he gave up his life, when he bore the penalty for sin by dying on a cross. And he did that so that people like you and I and those with whom we share the gospel might actually find themselves to be ready and prepared to meet him when he comes again. There used to be a magazine in Australia called The Bulletin. Does anyone remember The Bulletin magazine? Yeah. Some of you are thinking, hey, past tense, do you mean it doesn't exist anymore? I've got news for you, it doesn't exist anymore. It uh, finished publication a few years ago. In 1989, they... Uh, did an article where they gathered together some you know, so-called advertising gurus uh, in order to work out a, a, media, a, a PR campaign for Jesus, for when he returns. So what, for what, what Jesus should do if he wants to make the maximum impact on us when he comes back. And so it was a mocking kind of article um, light-hearted. I'm always uncomfortable when people want to mock serious things like that, but you know, in the spirit of light-heartedness, you'd probably see it on the sort of thing you'd see on the Gruen Transfer these days if you've ever seen that show. Well, they come up with a marketing plan for Jesus, and that is that they recommended that when he returns, he should return as a tennis player. Uh, they said that way he could, he could wear all, all white, uh, he could be assured of maximum media coverage. Uh, he could really connect with the corporate world through sponsorship and be opportunity for him for, to perform a few miracles on the tennis court as well. A mocking kind of thing. But what intrigued me was that what, what they were saying was important. What they were saying was important was what Jesus needed to do in order for him to prepare himself to meet us. Whereas what the Bible says, and the Bible's emphasis is what we need to do in order to be prepared to meet him. Big difference. And that's where we're going to go with this next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark. We thank you that you've re revealed your plan so clearly to us. And we thank you that you are faithful to your promises as you've shown so many times, especially in the days of Noah. Father, we do pray that Jesus would come again soon. But we thank you that he does so in your timing because you are merciful to those who uh, will repent. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be people who clearly are trusting in Jesus and are ready to meet him. We pray that you would grant us the courage to stand up uh, to opposition and the love to want to speak to people about their necessity to trust in the gospel uh, in order to avert the judgment which will surely come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.